and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they should become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Thank you, Angie. Well, we started the series with God because I believe the key to knowing ourselves is knowing God and His created purpose for us. The more deeply we understand God, the more we understand our own purpose and existence. Uh, Let's quickly review where we've been. The first week we saw that the purpose of God and the universe is the glory of God. God exists to glorify Himself and to enjoy His glory forever. And our highest joy is found in glorifying and enjoying Him most. And last week we just peeked into the attributes of God to see what is so glorious and enjoyable about the character of God. We saw that knowing God deeply fuels our confidence and joy in Him. And we know God is spirit, eternal, all-powerful, divine, everywhere, all-knowing, personal, unchangeable, sovereign, and holy. And God has revealed Himself in part through the created universe where we see his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature. But what about you and me? Uh, What are we like? Let's go to God to help him, or help him, yeah, he helps us in, uh, in understanding ourselves. So let's pray. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit will come and help us to comprehend these massive truths from your word that we could understand ourselves, understand our purpose, our existence, our value. And I pray that we can derive that solely from you and what you say. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, many people struggle with, with their identity. Who am I? Am I worth anything? Why was I put here? What is my purpose in life? Do I have value? Am I truly loved all these questions and more and oftentimes we are confused about who we really are maybe it's because we try to define ourselves by so many different things many of which do not do the job money appearance power positions possessions can these things actually define us let's try to understand ourselves in light of god's opinion And what he says in his word. There is a sermon insert so you can follow along if you're a note taker. We are created by God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1-1 tells us. Later in verse 27, we find out, so God created man in his own image. God said through Isaiah that everyone who is called by his name was created for his glory and formed and made Moses recited a song to this massive assembly of Israel and he tells them that God had created them. 
that he had made them, that he had established them. God shaped the universe. Like a master carpenter skillfully and carefully shapes his furniture with brilliant creativity, we were made by God. But not everyone believes this. Charles Darwin, the father of evolutionary theory, had much to say on humanity. A couple of quotes from Dr. Darwin. Man is descended from a hairy-tailed quadruped, probably arboreal in its habits. In other words, man is descended from a fuzzy animal with a tail that walks on all fours and swings from trees. Darwin said, A scientific man ought to have no wishes, no affections, a mere heart of stone. That's chilling. Another quote, We must, however, acknowledge, as it seems to me, that man with all his noble qualities still bears in his bodily frame the indelible stamp of his lowly origin. Last one. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is. At bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Darwin believed that you have a lowly existence. The Bible teaches us that you have a tremendous and splendid and holy origin and existence. We are no cosmic accident, nor the result of chance or random processes. We were skillfully and purposefully fashioned by God, designed with value and worth. Paul Cezanne's 19th century painting entitled The Card Players sold in 2011 for over $250 million. Do you have that stuffed in the couch at home? You could get Paul Cezanne's work. Now, why did it go for that much? Because some random guy named Paul painted it or because Paul Cezanne painted it? You have immense value, not because you evolved, not because you produce, not because you're successful or well-known or really attractive. You have value because God made you. And Christians believe this, not simply because we need purpose somehow or we need hope in life as a crutch of some sort just to get us through, but because God has revealed himself in what he has made and communicated in his word. Simply look at the intricate design of the universe, the complexity of the human body and mind and soul, and see evidence for God. We were made, and it doesn't stop there. Have you heard of the Imago Dei? We are created in the image of God. God, the image of God, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. Now there is a debate uh, on what exactly it means to be created in the image of God. It's complex, but it's really, really important to understand It might be helpful to think of it in this way. Think of humanity in two different 
ways. One, what is man like before the fall into sin? And secondly, what is man like after the fall into sin? What were we like before? What are we like after? Obviously, sin corrupted humanity. We see that all around us. And we are now very different than what we were. Adam and Eve enjoyed deep fellowship with God and each other and were magnificently satisfied in what they had. After Adam and Eve sinned, the condition of their relationship with God changed. And we'll look at that tragedy next week, but our purpose this week is to understand our original state, what we were like. So when we talk about the image of God, we must simply keep those two things separate in our minds. How did humanity bear the image of God before the fall, and how does humanity now bear the image of God after the fall? So how sin affects all of us will be next time. So how did humanity bear the image of God before the fall? Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, through 24, to put off our old self, which belongs to our former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed, that's a key word, renewed in the spirit of our minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. True righteousness and holiness. Notice how we are after the image of God in verse 24. True righteousness and and holiness. Before the fall, man reflected God's image through true righteousness and holiness. Without sin, they lived in righteousness and holiness, which displayed the image of God. They had a positive and joyful disposition to God and what God had asked them to do. Adam and Eve wanted to follow God, and they did. Colossians 3.10 says, And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Again, we see this word renewed. A restoration of what we once were that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. We were created to enjoy God through knowledge, through knowing Him. He knows us, we know Him. That's what we were made for. We were fully conscious and aware of His magnificence. We weren't too busy to notice or too tired or too distracted or sinful to rejoice in God's goodness. We just enjoyed God freely. We had an intimate and close relationship with Him. He engaged us as loving Father and we engaged Him as loving creation uniquely made in His image. In our original condition, we enjoyed true righteousness, holiness, and knowledge all after the image of God. We bore the image of God. You could call it the moral image of God. We'll get into this more next week, but I'll mention it here. Our true righteousness, holiness, and knowledge were lost in the fall into sin. Lost. We gave those up. Apart from Jesus Christ, we no longer bear that original moral image of God. And that's not to say that we no longer bear the image of God in any way. Every man, woman, and child is still created in the fantastic image of God. 
though that image is now stained and marred by sin. So the question now is, how does humanity now bear the image of God after the fall? What of the image of God still remains? Louis Burkhoff states, As created in the image of God, man has a rational and moral nature which he did not lose by sin and which he could not lose without ceasing to be man. End of quote. So there are at least three ways we bear the image of God after the fall. Number one, rationality. We think. We think. We reason. We apply logic. We formulate opinions and perceptions and communicate through language. You don't need to be a Christian to be rational. There are many non-Christians who are incredibly rational, incredibly intelligent, and we can recognize that. And even though they don't recognize that God is their creator, they still bear the image of the creator and communicate that wonder through their own intellect. So many people, all people, have some amount of logic or rationality. They are reasonable thinkers. Number two, emotions. We feel We hurt, we rejoice, we get angry. God made us emotional beings, some more than others perhaps, but we all feel. Now, I have strong affection for Christina, my wife, strong affection. One way of saying that is I have feelings for her, warmth, care, love, tenderness. If I didn't, something would be really wrong with me and our marriage. I have strong affection for my children. I like to be around them. I try to constantly just tell them that I love them and that I'm proud of them, showering my affection on them. All right, I have affection for Jerusalem Church. Though we're getting to know each other, I have a a pastoral loving affection toward you. This is natural for all of humanity to have feelings. We were made to feel. Number three, moral freedom. We choose things. We have been created with a will. We can decide and discern the difference between two different things. um, And we can choose. So we didn't cease to be rational beings, emotional beings, willing beings, once sin corrupted our nature. Our thinking, feeling, and choosing were certainly all affected by sin. But we still bear the image of God in these ways. And I would also go a step further to say that our bodies, in a mysterious way, reflect the image of God. Now, don't get me wrong, God does not have a body. He is not physical or temporal. As we learned last time, God is spirit. But I do agree with John Calvin that said, there was no part even of the body in which some rays of glory did not shine. You have value because you bear the image of God. Of the Almighty God. Steve Jobs was a business genius. He revolutionized the music and media industry. Just an absolute business genius. And he did it through originality. Um, There is a demand, I believe, for Apple products, which are great products. I just got an iPod. It's probably the first generation. The touch, it's old. But anyway, I have it and I love it. And um, he created a demand overhauled Apple and gave value to the company through innovation. 
and incredible marketing. He added value. God gives you your value. Now, in the middle of all that, how do you battle feelings of insignificance, insecurity? Where do you go with with those? How can you heal from the deep wounds caused by the careless, hurtful words of others to you? Healing comes when we flee to the cross of Jesus Christ and in Him find our image restored. We find our true identity restored in Christ. We heal when we derive our value solely from God. The gospel gives back to you what sin took from you, namely God. Let's make sure we have this point. We are the only creatures in all of the universe that can say, without pause, I bear the image of God. We are unique in creation, the crown jewel of God's creative work. We are rational, emotive, and willful. Do you really believe that God made you and crafted you in His image? And does that truth and reality define who you are? Or do you turn to some other things to define you? Things that actually might not be there tomorrow. The next point is exciting. Both men and women alike bear the image of God. This should get us stirred up a little bit. We are male and female. Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then if you go down to Genesis 5.2, male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created The Bible celebrates the beauty of gender distinction. Some professing Christians devalue gender differences and even accept homosexuality as an acceptable lifestyle. And it's odd. Some say that Jesus never taught on homosexuality as they evaluate the New Testament. And I find that argument unconvincing in part because the entire Bible is inspired by the authority of Jesus Christ himself. For example, when Paul teaches against homosexuality in the New Testament, in the pastoral epistles, and upholds gender distinction, his words carry the authority of Jesus Christ because Christ commissioned Paul to write those letters. It's also unconvincing to me because of how Jesus addressed these matters indirectly in passages like Matthew 19, 4 and 5. Take a look. Jesus answered, have you, this is from the words of Jesus, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Now, you can just read the words on surface and know exactly what Jesus is talking about and the clear distinctions that Jesus made in his earthly teaching ministry. Jesus created gender differences. He obviously upholds the value of marriage between one man and one woman. In fact, the entire analogy of Ephesians 5 Um, of Christ as the groom and the church as the bride falls on its face without gender distinction in marriage. You can't make it work. 
This topic, I know, is emotional for many. Perhaps some of you. My intent is not to offend. But because it's so emotional, we must stand upon God's word with grace and kindness and gentleness as we contend for the truth to say what he has said in his word. Our physical bodies with all of their complexity and intricacy of design, are part of us. Men are men. Women are women. And it's beautiful to God. Now, how do we know that God finds that distinction beautiful? Because God made men and women differently, each unique and equally valuable. All throughout the Bible, we see God promoting gender distinction and marriage between a man and a woman. And we should celebrate this. Celebrate our manhood and womanhood. Celebrate our awesome differences. We also know that God created sex for His glory. And that within the context of healthy and joyful marriage, sex is a beautiful expression of love and commitment. God tells us in Genesis 2, 23 through 25, Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Eve was a delight to Adam. He was excited at the creation of Eve. It was great for him. Okay? Continues. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now God gives the gift of singleness to some. But it is undeniably uh, clear that God made man and woman sexual beings. And God called it very good. Men and women complement each other. And God commanded humanity to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Jerusalem. We need to be a church that celebrates gender distinction and marriage and children. We've got to celebrate these things all because they are beautiful things in God's eyes. Sex changes, cross-dressing, homosexuality, effeminate men and masculine women are not pleasing to the Lord. Nothing that distorts gender is pleasing to God. Our gender and sexuality is beautiful. It is a special gift from God and God decides these things. Your sexuality and gender is designed for the glory of God. Jesus was a man. He acted like a man. He was built like a man. He talked like a man. He worked like a man. He carried himself like a man. And though he was never married and though he never had children, he nonetheless virtuously loved and respected all women. He knew their value and he upheld their value. We want the men of Jerusalem church to be strong, godly men. To be like Jesus, the man of all men. We want our men to take responsibility, to virtuously love women and to value them as image bearers of God. We want husbands to lovingly lead, serve and provide for their wives and their daughters We want the women of Jerusalem to be women of God, modeling the strength and discretion and dignity of women like Sarah and Mary and the Proverbs 31 woman and wife. 
Women that follow Jesus and treat men with respect and honor and ones who submit to their husbands as to the Lord and care for their sons. Brother in Christ, you were made in the image of God. Sister in Christ, you were made in the image of God. Rejoice that he made you man. Rejoice that he made you woman and joyfully submit to God in your sexuality. Next. We are immortal souls. We were created to live forever. Now that's a serious thought to just ponder for a little bit. We were created to live forever. Every man, woman, and child that lived on earth will live forever. When life begins, though it may die, it will raise again to meet eternity. Genesis 2-7 tells us, that the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. In Ecclesiastes 12, 7, we are told, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Jesus warned in Matthew 10, 28, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. If you do a little Bible study on eternal life and the resurrection uh, of humanity, you'll find the concept of immortality. We were created to live forever and we will. And our culture is fascinated with immortality. We make movies about it. We get very creative with some wild ideas about what immortality is. You know, a movie about the fountain of youth or the search for the Holy Grail. He turned me into a newt. I got better. Probably don't know that, most of you, but if you did, amen. Um, But do we really want to live on this earth how we are now forever? I don't. This is a twisted place. The reality is our lives are short and we will all die. Think about that. And death should challenge us to evaluate how we are currently living. Because your end is near. My end is near. We have but a breath and it's gone. So that should shape us That should help us to think. But more than that, our immortality should challenge us. The realization that God created us to live forever should greatly influence how we live and respond to Christ now because it matters after we die. How we relate to Jesus now defines how we will relate to Jesus then, either as our eternal joy or eternal justice. Your immortality could be either horrifying or hopeful depending on how you respond to Jesus now. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that unlocks eternal joy. Otherwise, it's eternal horror to think about the fact that you'll live on forever. Your immortality is extremely good news only if you know Jesus now. Together, we can manage the pain and the struggle of this life because of the infinitely good party that is promised us then through Jesus Christ. Oh, there's more about us. We are branded with the law. And when I say branded with the law, I mean it's printed on our hearts. You could say we're tattooed with the law 
on us. Adam and Eve, from the very beginning, knew God's law because it was on their hearts and because he told them. They knew it was good. Genesis 2, 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Notice three things in this passage. Number one, God gave a good command. It wasn't a burden for them, it was good. Number two, God gave Adam and Eve incredible pleasures to enjoy. He gave them himself He gave them each other. He gave them a garden of delights. Think of the satisfactions in that garden. Unbelievable. Unparalleled. The view was awesome. The food was awesome. The whole experience was awesome. All of it was extremely good and delicious and productive and Adam and Eve could enjoy all of it. Number three, God gave clear guidelines and consequences. They couldn't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Simple, straightforward, clear. No mistaking what God said. Everything else was fair game. Just go and enjoy. Have fun. Enjoy the garden I created for you. From the very beginning, the law of God was written on our hearts and it was told to us. Our loving Father God gave us clear guidelines with clear rewards and consequences and God blessed them. Here's what Paul wrote to the Romans. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. The Bible teaches that the law is written on our hearts. All of us know We know there is a God. We know he has standards. We know because he has written it on our hearts and communicated it to us very clearly. We know we're broken. We know we're sinful, which we'll get get to next time. Lastly, we were perfectly happy. Notice that I said we were perfectly happy. We are no longer perfectly happy. Sin changed that. Our sin was the surrender of our true happiness. We lost it. Never forget, sin changed kills true happiness. More on that next time, but for now, God made us and gave us paradise to enjoy. And all along the way, as God is creating, he's saying and seeing that it was good. And then he says it was very good after the creation of man. If Michael Jordan tells you that you have a nice jump shot, it means something. You probably have a nice jump shot. And if the God who made all things is creating and fashioning things and looking at them saying, it is very good, and he has given that to us, I think we can trust that it's really, really, really good. God essentially said to humanity, here are the mountains and the seas, the forest and the glades, the flowers and fruit, the streams and lakes. It's all for you. Enjoy it. And best of all, I give you myself Enjoy me. Genesis 1.28 says, And God blessed them. Yes, he did. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What a high calling we have as human beings. David wrote in Psalm 8 that God crowned man with glory and honor that he gave us dominion over the works of his hands and that he 
put all things under our feet. We have a glorious existence. Adam and Eve were truly blessed. They were happy. They were perfectly content in that garden with God. They enjoyed their marriage, the hope of children, and meaningful work. They ruled as king and queen over creation. They were given the keys to paradise. We were created to be happy and fulfilled in God. And the key to a fulfilling and joyful existence is simply God. We are not perfectly happy in this life, and there is a reason. Our perfect happiness was lost in the fall and can only be finally restored again in Christ. Now, just quickly, how does this all fit together? As I bring it in for a landing here, look around. We're not in paradise anymore. Life is good, but this place is broken, and it does not take very long to see that. Um, Life can be very, very hard. How do we make sense of this? We had paradise, but we lost it and don't have it anymore. I mean, how do you just not go into depression over that? Isn't that annoying? That tension leaves us all looking for a way to regain paradise. Our pain compels us to work our way back somehow. But how can we get paradise back? And this is where we answer a lot of times the culture answers. I'm just going to work harder for it. I'm just going to somehow try to let my good works outweigh my bad works and try to somehow regain and recapture paradise. And it doesn't work that way because we have tried over and over again to do it our own way and we find paradise is not coming back. Now, to leave us in some tension for next time. I feel like I'm jumping ahead, all right? But I got to say it. Jesus restores paradise. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for communicating very clearly to us when we study what man is. We are just overwhelmed by how you made us and fashioned us when we see what man can accomplish here on this earth not on our own but by your grace uh, we're just stunned but it doesn't compare to your glory and your goodness we are image bearers of you God we are valuable I pray for the person now that's struggling with their self-worth um who really might be going through some hard times. Maybe they're struggling with pain. That's someone, um, some words someone said about them years ago, and they're having a hard time letting it go, and they're even defining themselves by that. I pray that that just um, vanishes and that they can take their identity from you and what you have made them. And God, I pray that all that heard my voice this morning that are listening now, would find their identity and find paradise regained in the person and work of Jesus Christ. May we trust him above all things. In Christ's name we pray.